There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. The Jews picked up stones to, again to stone him. Jesus answered, I have shown you many good works from the father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God? If I am doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. And they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Superman doesn't work that hard to hide his real identity. You might know Superman's real name. If you can fill in the blank, what is it? Clark Kent, that's right. And how does Clark Kent hide his identity as Superman? With nothing more than a suit and glasses. Uh, There's a really funny comedy sketch that came out a couple years ago with the actors who played Batman and Superman. And the sketch opens, they're having a conversation at what looks to be some type of art gala. Although they're not Batman and Superman, they're sort of their alter egos. They're uh, Bruce Wayne and Clark Kent. So a fellow party guest walks by them and kind of does a double take. He looks at Clark Kent and he says, hey, I, I know you. Hey, has anybody ever told you you look a lot like Superman? <laughs> and he says, no, 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 I've never gotten that before. And so he walks away, but just for a moment. And then the, onlo- the onlooker returns. He says, no, you're Superman. And, and then so the crowd starts to take interest. And a second guy joins in. says, hey, look, here, this is Superman. And he goes, no, this can't be Superman. Superman has perfect vision. This guy's got glasses on. And so the first guy takes off the glasses. And then the second guy goes, oh, my goodness, I feel like such an idiot. He said, I can see why you feel like such an idiot. It took me two seconds to figure out Superman does not work that hard to hide his identity. Well, in John chapter 10, a crowd of onlookers tells Jesus that his true identity is tough to see. They tell him he hasn't made it plain. And so in his exchange that that ensues, Jesus basically tells them, 
My identity is no more hidden than Clark Kent's real identity. You'd have to be blind not to see it. Once again, in the Gospel of John, the identity of Jesus takes center stage. The main truths about Jesus are the plain titles given in this passage. And in the spirit of this passage that we read, let me make the main point of our time as plain as possible. Jesus is the Christ and Jesus is the Son of God. If you're going to sum up our passage this morning in one sentence, that's how you could do it. Jesus is the Christ and Jesus is the Son of God. My friend, if you don't believe this about Jesus, it's our prayer that the truth about him would become clear to you today from his word. We would love nothing more than to talk with you about how you're interacting with this passage in front of you today. But for most of you here, you already believe these truths about Jesus, that he's the Christ, that he's the son of God. And you might be thinking, really, Steve, this is what we're going to be talking about today? The identity of Jesus? Haven't we covered this already? Well, just to let you know, I would be feeling the exact same way if I was sitting where you were sitting right now. But Christians like you and me, I think, need to check ourselves if we have that kind of sentiment. I've heard someone else explain it like this. Someone else explain the one difference between a mature Christian and an immature Christian. An immature Christian reads the Bible, hears a sermon about a familiar topic, and uh, they think, you know what? I've heard this before. I don't really need it again. I'm just kind of going to check out now. I'll breeze past this. Whereas a mature Christian would come across something familiar from the Bible or in a sermon, and they would say instead, I've heard this before, but I must need it again. My friend, you, you might have heard this before, that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God, but you'd need this again. You need to rejoice in the good news of Jesus's identity Because this is what makes Jesus uniquely qualified for his work to save you. You need to look at how Jesus defends his claims for who he is. Because his claims are in no less contention today than they were when he was during his earthly ministry. You need to reflect on Jesus's identity. If Jesus is who he says he is, then you should never come to his word with a posture of, you know what, I've already arrived. You should always come with humble attentiveness to all that he says, if he really is who he is. So let's walk through John 10, 19 to 42, answering three big questions. Okay. Is Jesus really the Christ? Is Jesus really the son of God? And finally, how will you respond? First question, is Jesus really the Christ? We'll start by going back to verses 19 to 21. And verses 19 and 21 really act like a bridge from one scene to another. Now, Jesus has been in the city of Jerusalem for a while. Uh, Originally, it was during the Feast of Booths or Passover, or or Tabernacles, that is. And after this feast is over, in John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man who was born blind. And after that man is healed, the religious authorities question him. They badger him. And they take issue with this man's loyalty to Jesus, the one who healed him. And they take issue also with Jesus because Jesus healed on the sacred Sabbath day and the religious authorities had their own made up rules about the sacred Sabbath day. So eventually this leads the authorities to kick out the man from the synagogue and to, take, um, to pick a fight with Jesus. This prompts Jesus to indict the religious authorities of his day at the end of chapter 9 and on into the beginning of chapter 10 where we were last week. 
Jesus says that the religious authorities like the Pharisees are blind to the truth about him. That's right in front of them. Not only are they blind, but they aren't the authorized shepherds that the people really need. Jesus tells them that you guys are out only for yourselves. And he says, I am the shepherd that the people need. He's the one who's commissioned by God the Father to purchase and protect the sheep by laying down his life for them and taking it up again. That's where we were last week. Today in John chapter 10, verses 19 to 21, John begins by giving sort of a straw poll of the results of people hearing all that Jesus has had to say. And it basically breaks down into two camps. Incredibly, some hear all that Jesus has to say about him being the good shepherd, and they say he is demon-possessed. Others look at what Jesus did and what he said, and they say the demon-possessed conclusion goes too far. So the division between the people can really be broken down like this. There are those who hate Jesus and those who say, well, at least I don't dislike him. That's sort of the air we're breathing as we head into verse 22. Like a good narrator, John notes the time and place. Now, he says where Jesus is going to the Feast of Dedication. If you know your Old Testament feast, you might not recognize this one because it's not there. It's not in the Old Testament. This feast celebrated the rededication of the temple that happened in between the Old and the New Testament around 164 B.C. This was after the temple was desecrated three years earlier by the Seleucids. Antiochus Epiphanes tore down the altar inside the temple and set up a pagan one. And it was Judas Maccabeus who led the revolt and recapturing of the temple, and the Jews celebrated for eight days. If that's starting to sound familiar, that's because this is what became known as Hanukkah. This is what's going on here. This is where Jesus is. Late in the year, it took place at around December of each year. John tells us that Jesus is walking and teaching in Solomon's colonnade rather than in the open court of the temple where he would be normally. Probably not anything very profound going on here. He was probably doing this to stay warm, walking around. But noting this location might be a bit of an Easter egg for John because uh, Jesus speaks about his identity as the Christ here in Solomon's colonnade. And after Jesus dies and rises again, his disciples will speak about Jesus being the Christ in this very same spot, Solomon's colonnade, later in Acts chapters 1 and 2. But finally, we get into the action starting in verse 24. And the action starts with a question and a demand. The crowd tells Jesus, how, will you, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, I want you to read this carefully. What is the crowd after? Do they really want to know if Jesus is the Christ? Notice how they ask the question. It's something different than that. They don't want to know if Jesus is the Christ. They want to know whether or not Jesus claims to be the Christ. You see, I think if they were sincere, if, if wondering whether or not Jesus was really the Christ, they would add a little bit more of a dose of humility to how they approach Jesus. But if there's a chance that Jesus is the Christ, you don't come up to Jesus trying to boss him around. I, I think what's going on here is they've made up their minds already. They don't want to hear Jesus say he's the Christ so that they can worship him. They want to hear Jesus say he's the Christ so that they can stone him as they are prepared to do in just a moment. My friend, this reminds me, just let this be a lesson for you. You will never recognize who Jesus is if you've already made up your mind about him before you've taken a look at the evidence. You'll never recognize who he really is. 
You know, this trend hasn't gone away. It's just taken on new forms. It reminds me of the quote I shared a few weeks ago. It goes like, uh, you won't be a good Bible reader if you've decided in advance what the Bible should already say. Right? It's, or it's how a lot of people go to the doctor now. Right? Having, you have unlimited access to information on Google. So you just type in all of your symptoms. And then you go to the doctor and say, doctor, I have this. I need you to give me this medicine. I've talked to physicians at our church who are very frustrated with this. And uh, even the commercial, the drug commercials on TV tell you, like, tell your doctor to give you this medicine. (laughs) Friends, if you've decided in your mind that I'm already an expert and know everything there is to know about Jesus, I've made up my mind about him before honestly looking at the evidence, then you'll never recognize the truth about him. That's what's going on here. Well, Jesus can always see through the plots of his opponents, So when he responds in verse 25, notice Jesus doesn't exactly oblige their request. He doesn't indulge them. Jesus is not going to directly say, I am the Christ. In fact, Jesus never says that in public. He has said it in private to the woman at the well in John 4. He said it in private to the disciples in Matthew 16. But he hasn't directly claimed to be the Christ in public. And he doesn't do it here. You might be wondering why. I think Jesus has a couple of good reasons why he wouldn't do this. The first is the problem that we run into still in our age. Maybe maybe you've heard it described like this, that people can use the same words, but be taking them from different dictionaries. Same words, different dictionaries. So when the people who come up to Jesus, when they use the word Christ or when they use the word Messiah in their dictionary, they have an incomplete definition of that word. Because they think of the Christ as God's chosen king who will politically and militarily usher in God's kingdom. Now, when Jesus uses that word, he's using God's dictionary, the Bible. And the Bible's definition of Christ or Messiah is more than just a military and political king. It's also a suffering servant who dies for sinners so that they can enter into his kingdom. Same word, different dictionaries. You know, this actually happens when Jesus uses the same word with his disciples in Matthew 16, passage we just mentioned. What, what happens when Jesus tells them that I'm the Christ, the son of the living God? And then he says, I must die and on the third day rise again. What does Peter do after that? He gets in his face. He has the audacity to get in Jesus's face because he's using the same word, but has a different definition for it. Right, so why, not, why, use, why use the word that has misunderstanding behind it? I think that's a good reason why Jesus doesn't make this claim. Another good reason Jesus won't state directly that he's the Christ is really that a relationship with Jesus won't work if you come to him on your terms. A relationship with Jesus will only work if you come to him on his terms. If you're the one who sets the agenda, you're not treating Jesus as the king. You're treating him as a servant and yourself as the king. No, a relationship with Jesus will only work if you come to him on his terms. And this can come in in very sneaky, disguised ways. So maybe you or somebody in your life always kind of punts on the question of religion and Christianity and the gospel. Maybe they politely dismiss it. Maybe they would say something like, ah, that's really nice, but you know, I just have some lingering questions I don't really know the answer to. Maybe if I get those questions answered, I would really more consider the claims of Jesus and who he says and what he's done. Now, don't get me wrong, asking questions isn't a bad thing, but that kind of excuse could just be that. 
They could just be an excuse. It reminds me of something, I think it was Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist who said, uh, he wrote that it's not just that I don't believe in God. He said, I don't want there to be a God. (laughs) See, if, if you want your questions answered, you want all your questions answered, it, it might not be because you want more evidence. It might be because you want to avoid the truth. Because if Jesus really is Lord, then that means you're not. So Jesus says just about the same thing here. He says, you know, I've said enough things to you guys. I've done enough things before you guys. The problem isn't with the lack of evidence. The problem is with your lack of belief. What has Jesus said so far? What has he done so far? Well, why don't we just take a quick tour through the Gospel of John? So you have your Bible open. Why don't you flip back to the beginning of the Gospel of John? Flip back to chapter 2, verses 6 to 10. Let's take a look at what Jesus has said and done. It should be enough for them. Chapter 6, verse 2 through 10. Jesus turns water into wine. And everyone recognizes at that party that it is a miracle. This is something that wasn't done in private. It was something done in public for everyone to see. Chapter 3, verse 13. He tells Nicodemus, the Pharisee, that he descended from heaven. Chapter 4, verse 29. He told the Samaritan woman at the well all that she had ever done. Chapter 5. Verses 1 to 16, Jesus heals a man who was paralyzed for 38 years, and even his opponents recognized that he did it. Chapter 5, verses 17 to 18, Jesus refers to his father in such a way that made the Jews realize that he was claiming equality with God. Chapter 5, verse 26, he says that the father has given him life in himself. Chapter 5, verse 39, He says that all the scriptures are about him. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 13, he feeds what would have been a group of 20,000 people with a plate of food. And people recognize what he did. And afterwards, in verse 14, they want to make him king. Right after that, chapter 6, verse 35, or around that area, Jesus walks on water and then says, I am the bread of life. A big deed and a big claim. What does Jesus say and do? Chapter 8, verse 12. He says he is the light of the world. Chapter 8, verse 42. He says, I came from God. Chapter 8, verse 52. He says, those who keep his word will not taste death. Chapter 8, verse 58. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. He heals a blind man. Chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. He tells this man that he is indeed the son of man, a messianic title. Was the problem really with lack of evidence or lack of belief? Even in chapter seven, there are people who recognize that. Chapter seven, verse 31 says, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Chapter seven, verse 46, people say no one ever spoke like this man. Jesus is telling them, I have already said enough. I have already done enough. The problem isn't with the lack of evidence. The problem is with the lack of belief. So to return to the passage at hand, starting at chapter 10, verse 26, Jesus explains to them why they don't believe. They don't believe. They don't listen to him. They don't know him. They don't follow him. He says, because they're not his sheep. His sheep are those who hear him and follow him. And because the father has chosen them. 
has given them to Jesus. The father chooses them, the son dies for them, and they jointly protect them. We're going to reflect on that more in just a little bit. But for now, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of these opponents of Jesus. Jesus tells you, you don't believe because you're not my sheep because the father hasn't chosen you. Well, what might be your response to Jesus? He says, well, Jesus, it must not be my fault then. If I don't believe, it must be. It's not my fault. God didn't choose me. Do you read Jesus blaming God at all in this passage? Whose fault is the inability to believe? Is it God's fault or is it their fault? It's theirs. Jesus is not excusing them. Jesus is indicting them. There's a longer discussion about what it means for us to be totally depraved. But really what we're saying from this passage is that our inability is a result of our sin. It's our fault. So I think about it like this. I've heard it explained like this. Let's say someone chooses uh, to make a decision to take part of a crime, right? And that decision leads to another decision to cover up that crime. And then another decision to do another crime, to maybe to get more money. And then on and on and on it goes. And pretty soon this person is in over their head and they would say, I'm stuck. I'm unable to help myself. That person's inability, whose fault is it? It's their own fault that they're unable. We want to say that they're less responsible for their actions. The thing is, friends, Jesus says that all of us are unable to believe in him. All of us inherit a desire to make ourselves king and reject him as king. That's why he says in John 6, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. So my friend, if you're sitting here this morning, maybe not a Christian yet, wondering whether or not God has chosen you, that's not your job. Jesus says your job is to repent and believe the gospel. And when you do that, you will soon figure out that you did that only because God first drew you in. And maybe he's drawing you in this morning because you're sitting in church, right? Well, is Jesus really the Christ? He says, I've said enough. I've done enough. Even though we won't recognize him on our own, Jesus knows there will be those who do believe in him. They are the ones called by the Father, purchased by the Son, and kept jointly by the Father and the Son. Yes, Jesus won't say directly that he's the Christ, but he gives them an even greater statement in verse 30. He says, I and the Father are one. It's upon these words that the scene turns hostile. And we come to the second big question about Jesus's identity. Is Jesus really the son of God? Now, when you look at verse 31, the word that sticks out most to me in that verse is the word again. It's that like just such a devastating word. They picked up stones again to stone him. This is now their third attempt to stone Jesus. Previously happened in chapter five and in chapter eight. You know, it makes you wonder whether or not they had some type of concealed stone-carrying license. I mean, they seem to be ha- have these things ready on hand all the time. But with stones in hand, arms reared back, Jesus asks a question. He says, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? I think this is Jesus' way of saying, what have I done that's been so bad? <laughs> What have I done that hasn't been the work of God? What have I done that's run contrary to God's nature? 
I think what he's essentially saying, guys, what does it say about you that you're going to stone someone who makes the lame walk and the blind see and soon enough the dead live? Later on in the book of John, chapter 15, it says that they hated Jesus without a cause. But here they say their beef with, their beef with Jesus is that he is a man who makes himself equal with God. Now, Jesus' initial response in verse 34 reads sort of like Hebrew scripture case law. Jesus quotes from Psalm, Psalm 82, which he says comes from your law. Sometimes that title law was used as an umbrella term for all of the Old Testament. In Psalm 82, there are human beings who are referred to as gods. Now, this doesn't mean that they are gods, but maybe more something closer to God's representatives. Jesus' point isn't overly theological, it's mainly practical. Jesus is saying, guys, it's not controversial for humans to be called gods. In fact, there's a precedent for it. How much less controversial should it be for me to be called the son of God? This is just an aside, but did you notice in verse 36 how high a view of the Bible that Jesus has? What does he say? The scriptures cannot be broken. Not only does Jesus affirm that, look at his entire argument. His entire argument rests on one word of the Bible. That's how reliable Jesus, uh, that's how reliable of the Bible Jesus has a view of. Last week at our foundations class, we talked about the verbal plenary inspiration of scripture. Inspiration means that simply that the Bible is breathed out by God. Plenary means that all of it comes from God, not just some of it. And verbal means that even the words themselves come from God, not just the thoughts and ideas of the Bible. Jesus has this high of a view of the Bible. Do you have that high of a view of the Bible? Now, back to this scene, the Jewish crowd likely got a little bit upset with Jesus, or a lot bit upset with Jesus, Because his claim back in verse 30 of I and the Father are one sounds like a massive contradiction to Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Might sound familiar. The verse says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Something interesting to note about that word one in that verse is that it's not masculine, it's neuter, meaning it doesn't mean one person, it means one being. That same word one is actually used, I believe it's in Genesis 2, 7 where it says the man shall leave his mother and father and become one flesh with his wife. So even in that word one, there is precedent for there being plurality in one. So what Jesus is saying here isn't a contradiction to Deuteronomy 6.4. Rather, it's more of a clarification. It's even a culmination. You see, friends, the Bible contains what's referred to as progressive revelation. It works like this. And think about any relationship that you have. Did you get to know that person like Neo from The Matrix got to learn Kung Fu? You might remember that scene that he just takes a floppy disk into a computer and then within 30 seconds he knows everything there is to know about Kung Fu. Is that how your relationships with other people have worked? No. You get to know someone over time. The same works with God. God doesn't reveal all he has, all we can know about him all at once at the very beginning. He reveals himself progressively. So the doctrine of the Trinity, that there is plurality in one God, that that there is one God who eternally exists as three persons, we see that in seed forms in the Old Testament. But the full flower, 
comes in the new. Seed forms, like a favorite passage Jesus loves to quote is Psalm 110. David writing, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord. David's referring to someone who's above him, who is distinct from Yahweh and yet equal with Yahweh. See a little bit of a seed there that there is plurality within the one God. Now, if you want to know more about the Trinity, come to our foundations class at 945, where the Trinity is our subject in just two weeks. But once again, it's not that the Old Testament says that there is one God and that the New Testament says there are three gods. No, there is one God and it becomes clearer and clearer that this God has eternally existed as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. This is not a contradiction. It's a clarification and even a culmination. Now, as Jesus goes on in verses 37 and 38, he appeals to them. He says, guys, look again at what I have done. Could it be that I really am the one you've been waiting for, that I really am the one who's been promised? Like has already been said in the Gospel of John, Jesus is the new and better temple, the person in whom God's presence perfectly dwells on earth. Like has already been said in John, Jesus is the true and better bread from heaven, the one who doesn't just sustain our earthly life, but gives eternal life. Like it's been said already in John, Jesus is the light of the world, better than the pillar of fire that led them to the promised land of Canaan. He is the light that leads to the promised land of heaven. And right here, Jesus is the true and better son of God. You know, son of God is actually just a title that's actually given to those like Adam and Israel and David in the Old Testament. Each one of these were given a unique position to represent what God is like on earth. And each one of these failed to represent what God is like on earth. Jesus is able to be the faithful son of God on earth because he has eternally existed as God the son in heaven. It's as if Jesus is at pains to tell them, guys, I'm not a man making myself out to be God. I'm God the son who became man. And I did it to do what you couldn't do for yourself. Now, I can't help but look at verses 37 and 38 and see Jesus's patient and compassionate heart. Look at what Jesus is trying to do. He's attempting to persuade people who want to trap him and stone him and arrest him. We have so much to learn from our Lord. In our day, it's fashionable not to seek to win your opponents, but to trounce your opponents. May we have the same heart of Jesus for those around us who have been hostile to him and to his gospel. Now, unfortunately, verse 39 tells us that the people persist. They seek to arrest Jesus, so Jesus winds up in the same place where he began his public ministry, by the Jordan River where John the Baptist ministered. And this section of John chapter 10 comes to a close. Well, in the Gospel of John, we've said the identity of Jesus is center stage. And in this passage, we see two key titles for Jesus, that he is the Christ and he is the Son of God. These titles are no less contested than they were back in the first century. And the question for you becomes, friends, how will you respond to this? It's no less contested today. One pastor shares this that I read. Be honest, friend. All religions are not the same. Think about what different religions say about Jesus. Jews believe that Jesus was a rogue rabbi who deserved death. Muslims believe Jesus is an honored prophet who never died, didn't really die on the cross. 
Mormons believe that Jesus became a, God, became a God in the spirit world. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus was the first of Jehovah's crea- creations. Hindus believe that Jesus is one among many gods. Buddhists believe Jesus was uniquely enlightened teacher. Theological liberals believe Jesus is merely a moral model. Christians, biblical Christians, believe that Jesus is God's eternal son who truly died for our sins, who physically rose from the grave, who powerfully reigns in glory, who will soon return to dwell with us forever. My friend, if you're not a Christian or even if you know someone who's not, don't come to a conclusion about Jesus before you engage honestly Engage honestly with accounts about Jesus written by eyewitnesses. Take Jesus' own invitation. What does he tell you to do? Consider what I've done. Consider what I say. Begin with Jesus' central work, his death, burial, and resurrection. That Jesus really did physically rise from the dead is the best explanation for his empty tomb. It's the best explanation for the sudden change in his cowardly disciples. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, would it be too hard for him to give sight to the blind? If he really did rise from the dead, would it be too hard for him to make the lame walk? My friend, today, why don't you check out a book called Your Verdict on the Empty Tomb? The author is Val Grieve. I believe there's a copy available in our resource center. Christian, our brother or sister, this would be a good resource to keep on hand. Uh, to give your non-Christian neighbors and friends. Well, speaking of Christians, friend, if you have believed that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, you should respond by enjoying this truth. Don't just treat it as a subject to be studied because you still need this. Don't miss the goodness of the good news. Your rescue from sin and death took nothing less than the eternal son of God taking on flesh and becoming man. And he did it for you. You should respond by enjoying this, by worshiping him for it. And you should respond by testifying to others about the identity of Jesus. Just like Jesus testifies to the truth about himself through his words and through his works, so you, my friend, Jesus' disciple, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are to testify to the truth about who Jesus is with your words and with your works. Your Lord's will for your life is that others would see your good works and be pointed to him, Matthew 5. Remember what we encountered in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, just a few months ago. It says, you are to proclaim, yes, with your mouth, you are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Brother and sister, when you testify to the truth about who Jesus is and what he has done, you can expect to be treated like Jesus was here. After all, he said that a disciple is not above his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. But John 10 tells you that you can also expect your Savior and God to keep you. So my friend, there's no awkward moment. There's no rejection. There's no opposition, Jesus says, that can snatch you from his hand. And John 10 gives you even more hope than that. I love how this passage ends. When John the Baptist testified to the truth about who Jesus is, he received the same treatment as Jesus would receive. But the word he spoke about Jesus was not in vain. The seeds of the gospel that John the Baptist sowed may have laid fallow underground for years, but eventually they took root and bore fruit and people believed. 
Friend, would you have that same hope for your non-Christian neighbor, your non-Christian family member, that the seeds of the gospel you sow in them might take root years later? Let me encourage you, your labor, if you labor in the Lord, will not be in vain. I know that for a fact because there is coming a day when Jesus returns and our faith will be sight and it will be clear, unmistakably plain that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Every eye will see him, Revelation 1-7 says. Let's pray and praise the Lord. Our Savior and God and our good shepherd, thank you for who you are and what you have done. We want to worship you and rejoice in the truth that you are the Christ, the Son of God. We want to be faithful witnesses to your identity. And Lord, we want more people to know you and have life in your name. Lord, help us now leave behind these truths. Help us to faithfully uh, give a reason for the hope that is within us and to do so with gentleness and respect as you did. And Lord, would you advance your kingdom? Oh, great Christ, that you would draw many sinners like us into your kingdom because they would take hold of what you have done for them. We thank you, Lord. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen.